Hi, I'm Mark Anielski. I'm the host of the Economics of Wellbeing. I'm so pleased to have today Genoa Graham, who's the brother of, of Jason Graham, who was my last guest. Genoa is a very special and celebrated and decorated um, woman who has quite a story to tell. Uh, she is an international public speaker, an author, a professor, and an adjunct executive team leader. Her 20-year career of combined multinational corporate accounting and consulting experience reflects core values of transparency, integrity, efficiency, and sustainability, resulting in multi-million dollar savings. Genoa has already written her memoirs, though she's probably not even 50 years of age yet. She is an extraordinarily interesting person with a remarkable upbringing, and I think you'll enjoy this conversation that leads us down many different pathways. Uh, we share something in common, our, our love of accounting and full-cost accounting, which to some of us may seem really boring, but she's also passionate about helping others understand financial literacy, something that most of us tend to lack or were never educated in. And I think she has some really great ideas for all of us to consider. And and we'd like to close off this year with a reflection of, of gratitude, of thankfulness to you who are listening to the podcast over the last year, very difficult year in the global pandemic. But hopefully the podcast and I guess have given you a sense of hope, uh, possibilities, that things as dark as they might be are always full of promise and always full of joy. Enjoy Janelle Graham as my 90th guest on the Economy Wellbeing Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in 2022. So Janelle Graham, you're you're the brother of of uh, Jason, right? Jason. Yes. Jason, yes. who who was the last guest I think on. So if if it's true, you you'd be the ninetieth uh, guest on this podcast, the Comedy Well Being. And oh, wonderful. Uh, I was I was thrilled to connect with you, and and you have quite a amazing story written your own uh, biography already. Uh, no, what do you call it? Uh, a, a memoir. A memoir. A memoir mm-hmm. which is different than a biography. Um, so tell us about you and you know what your uh, what gets you up in the morning. What are you what are you excited about? And you've got a PhD and you're amazing, amazing person. Oh, thank you. So um, being Jason's little sister has um, inspired me a lot to to helping people. Um, as you'll read in my memoir, we have been through a lot. And so I have dedicated um, my life and career to helping others. And with my accounting background and my business background, um, I have a a BS in accounting, an MBA in management, and then um, actually two doctoral degrees, um, one in organizational leadership and the other in sustainability. Um, So I am very well equipped. (laughs) (laughs) One wasn't enough. Two doctorals dissertations i had to get two i was spiritually led um, by my pastor to get a second doctoral from the state of georgia where i currently reside um, so that i can do some things here so having that degree would open 
um, some doors and it has um, in, in that respect. Um, so I love financial um, literacy. Um, I love helping people to um, reduce their costs, streamline their processes. Um, if you're building a new company or reorganizing or restructuring your finance, um, very, very well versed and, and capable of doing that, um, both, both domestically and internationally. Wow. So I think you and I have a common passion, which is weird, which is full cost accounting and, uh, and helping each other with uh, even basic financial literacy. So what, what do you see and what, what, what gives you sort of a unique um, competency or insights into this area? Um, the biggest insight is I've been managing a home since I was 14. Um, so I, I think I'm the longest running person that I know of that can manage a household budget. Um, I have 20 years of corporate experience, but I, I actually care. Um, the corporate America world can be kind of cold, kind of dog eat dog. Um, I call it the corporate hunger games. Um, I operate differently. Um, I actually care about leadership. I care where um, executives feel and need that the company needs to go. And I am very invested in making sure that the tasks and operational and financial processes um, work together to not fight against that vision, but to support that vision. And so that's what makes me different. Wow. So you got your PhD when you're 14 because you had to, under duress, take over the household. Is that what you're saying? No, I don't get that. I'm just Not make light of your teenage years, but some, some of us were thrown into the deep end and we had to figure things out because mm -hmm. our parents weren't taking care of things. Or, uh, But you're saying you, at 14 years of age, you learned a lot of basic life skills and I did um, I was um, taking care of the home the the cooking and the cleaning um, and then at age 15 I got pregnant and at the time during the time that I was pregnant my mother got married and actually moved out of the house and so I was going to school had a part-time job had the pregnancy so I was paying all of the bills except for rent. We lived in, you know, low income housing. Wow. So she paid the rent, but I paid everything else. So I got to learn about light bill, water bill, you know, dealing with maintenance when there was maintenance issues. You know, I, I really ran that home while she wasn't there. So. Wow. And that was in Georgia? Actually, I was born and raised in Indiana. Oh, mm -hmm. right. Indiana, Indiana. Yeah. I've been in Georgia 10 years now. Wow. Wow. So that's, that's interesting. Uh, that's quite, I mean, that itself is quite a story. Um, and <laughs> so you, you transcended them um, because I'm always curious about how we, you know, when I do the well-being research, how so many people, you know, if you ask them about their childhood, how was your childhood one to 10 and how is, uh, what's your life satisfaction like today as an adult? And so often there's this, this gap, you know, and, and it's like, people transcended maybe a, a difficult or challenging childhood. And I don't know anything about their childhood. They're just saying, look, like three out of 10 or four out of 10. And, uh, and then they're eight or nine out of 10 in, in their adult years. So you're someone I think that ref reflects that, that journey. And, uh, and yeah. look at you, you go on to do two, two PhDs and uh, you're providing such an amazing, I think, uh, benefit uh, to society. Um, 
so that's just a reflection on and not to delve into that but it's like I'm, I'm curious how you you spiritually emotionally transcended these challenges of your teenage years and arrive at where you are today oh well thank you um well a lot of that uh transition and transparency is in my memoir um so basically i kind of fumbled through the first half of my life um, my teens my 20s just trying to figure it out while raising my son uh, my son is um 27 now he'll be 28 wow. next year um so coming to georgia was my first you know real spiritual experience on how to pray the fundamentals of the bible the fundamentals of how to live life according to the word of God and just taking that teaching for the last 10 years and just reflecting on my life and understanding what God has called me to do and what I want out of life and making sure that I am living a life that's pleasing to God as I'm navigating day to day. So. Wow. So yeah, you could have fallen into the trap of despair or uh, all of those, um, I would say, dislocations from God's love, but you pursued, you, you kept going and encouraged by uh, others. Um, so that's fascinating how you've integrated your faith and your professional life. Um, mm -hmm. I would call it God's business plan, but whatever, there are other words for that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that. I'll take that. Or things I'll just kind of work out when you look back and go, gee, I, I can't believe all the miracles are happening in the midst of what I thought was disaster. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you've developed uh, uh, some unique, uh, unique protocol to look at someone's financial sort of, um, well, use a strong word, uh, disaster, but uh, condition, <laughs> which I think helps people understand their, um, build our understanding of finances, financial literacy. So tell us about what, what are you, what are you finding and what do you, how are people benefiting from this economic, uh, call me economic disaster index, right? Which, yes. So which is the, the antithesis of a well-being index. Well, maybe not, you know, just. Well, I think it could be used as one of the assessment tools in support um, of a well-being, of an overall well-being index. Um, so what it does is it helps, edu helps um, educate people on both the income side of their um, budget and the expense side. So it gives them a clear picture from the deductions that are being taken out of their paycheck, the expenses that they're spending, and it gives them um, a rating system on a scale from zero to five, where zero is you have lots of disposable income and you're really not having an issue really capable of doing anything that you want to a five where you're in disaster. So you're either paycheck to paycheck or you're in the negative. So you don't have enough money coming in for all of your expenses. And so as you look at the components of how much you're making, what's going out of your paycheck and then what's going out of your home, it forces people to kind of look and face the, the true picture of their life and it attaches a number to it. And it's like, okay, now you have information. What do you want to do about it? Right. And, and what are the biggest financial stressors that you're seeing in people's lives right now in terms of that, uh, say a debt burden or what, what is it that um, people are struggling with? And I mean, it's- Most people are struggling. If, if they're not in poverty, they are struggling in debt purposes from, from education loans. 
student uh-huh. loans are killing people. Um, they, they're thinking that, myself included, that educating themselves and in that making that investment that they would get a quick return on investment and be able to not only pay off the student loan debt, but increase their cost of living and quality of life. Well, we're finding the economy is not really reflective of that. So one, you're able to identify um, some very educated people trying to do the right things, but they're still having make, to make some sacrifices and changes that they didn't have to um, plan for. From a poverty standpoint, um, sometimes people don't, they, they know that they're in the poverty level, but they still feel like they're okay. Um, this gives an opportunity for people who are at the poverty level to take a hard look at the numbers and say, okay, do you want to continue to be in this, are you truly okay? Or do you want something different for yourself? And I've had it both ways. I've had it where people are, you know, I'm fine. You know, they're, you know, in their fifties or their sixties, they have a fixed income and they, they, they're doing what they're doing and they're going to continue to do it. Um, and then I've had other people that's like, it's not too late to make changes. I want to do this, this, and this. And so they use that information to make changes. Wow. That's, that's good. Uh, so I guess it also depends on what age cohort you're speaking to. Um, I'm curious, uh, you know, when you say, cause I've studied poverty and uh, I know you're, um, since we're not on video, you're, you're an African-American woman and, uh, and African-American people tend to be disproportionately poor, at least in terms of financial, uh, resources. Uh, what, what, how do you define poverty from your lived experience? Um, From my lived experience, poverty is when either you're living off of the government, um, like welfare or some sort of check where you're not earning income and it's not investment income, um, or you're living paycheck to paycheck, you make less than, you know, $35,000 and it's you, your your spouse and some kids. Um, So there's really, you're, you're, just basically making enough um, to take care of your very, very basic needs. And for some people there, I've seen people there, they were fine with that. Um, they, they're not comfortable with a whole lot of extra money because they have vices and things um, that it, not having money keeps them from it. And so That's... they're able to be responsible adults because they don't have the extra money to get into some of that other stuff. So that's, that's fine. So do you, then provide advice. I mean, one of the things that we could talk about is the, uh, you know, this, the project I was involved in Cincinnati to try to create a new community development fund that would, you know, uh, alleviate one of the biggest costs, which would be uh, mortgage debt uh, on low-income households. Uh, do you do you provide coaching, personal coaching, uh, to people on how to transition from a, from a five to a two or uh, and what, what do you advise if you're advising? Um, I do. I provide <clears throat> information on ways. So we look at the information. So is the, is, is the, are the numbers telling us that you need to increase your income because your costs are as low as they could possibly be? Or are you overspending? Um, a lot of times if people are overspending, but they don't have a, a lot of extra cash, is because they bought a house that's bigger than what they needed. Um, and they're essentially house broke. So they have this big, beautiful house and all their money is going into the house. And, you know, if they downsized and got something smaller, 
you know, that would free up some money and in, in this, that, and the third. So there is some of that. So based, I, I just let um, the EDI and the analysis tell us what's going on. And then we just walk through some changes that could be made based on the conversation um, with the client on what they want to change. Wow. So are you applying any of your accounting skills in this regard or um, do you like upsell your other services or when you... Um, I kind of do. I got a lot of tax clients that way. Um, <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Everyone needs a tax account. <laughs> I do. I have a few business owners um, that I've done this with. And so from a business perspective, I've helped them improve their bookkeeping and their record keeping. And then that just turned into tax time. Um, me being their tax preparer because I had seen their finances before and they, you know, they trust me and that kind of thing. So, wow. Yeah. Are you seeing any parallel lessons for small business owners vis-a-vis uh, -vis what you would coach a household in terms of? I do. Yeah. Um, my, my biggest challenge with small business owners is separating um, their personal household income and expenses from the business. Mm -hmm. And so I do a lot of coaching and working with them to separate the bank accounts, separate the expenses. Um, if you're going to use a credit card, you know, it has to have a, you know, there has to be a benefit out of it that doesn't hurt you and the interest rate and that kind of thing. So it's, it's very customized, my coaching based on what is going on with their situation and their needs. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. We were talking to some of my colleagues who was explaining why I think there's an advantage to incorporation versus sole proprietorship uh, because, you know, you can have dividends, you can have all these things that, uh, and, you know, you can write off things and you can be kind of removed, uh, you're not completely legally removed as a director of your company versus, right? So there's all these benefits that nobody taught you and including business school where I used to teach. Uh, so there's some some impressive benefits of having a corporation and and uh, it's not like you're gaming a system it's the system is has those rules and you just you're living within them exactly it's it's all about knowledge and, and reading the fine lines and understanding the positioning um so i i do have some um i'm a by the book person um but i do have some clients that like to work the legal wiggle room and so we kind of work together um, with my comfortability and their interest in working the wiggle room. And it's worked out very well. <laughs> <laughs> my motto is I don't look good in orange, so I'm not going to go to jail and I'm not going <laughs> to let you go either. <laughs> I like that. Why are there only orange jumpsuits? I want pink. I want polka dots on. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love my freedom. <laughs> I love my freedom. <laughs> wow. So. So you're interested in, so you've got this accounting, leadership, and sustainability. Like, uh, tell me more about your interest in sustainability, or is that related to financial sustainability? Or are we talking larger scale, ecological? It's actually the larger scale. So when I have a multinational um, corporation client, and I, I haven't had one in a, in a while, um, but we're looking at all of it. So the, the people, the planet, the finances, and then the governance and all of that. Um, so the PPP and the, the legal. Um, so all aspects of it. Um, and so, but working with the GRI ratios and analysis, um, just basically a lot of standardization there. 
Um, So when I have those, I'm looking at we're either migrating financial processes or we're looking at streamlining operational and financial processes um, to align with the vision. And so I'm able to use those tools and those metrics um, to help them define what it is that they're looking for and the goals that they want to reach. And then we just make changes accordingly. So that's the subject of my of interest for me too, because I was involved with the GRI from the very beginning and the, uh, the first handbook. Uh, curious what you're seeing in terms of uh, the utility of GRI uh, kind of accounting for, uh, especially that I would say the more medium size enterprises, because uh, some would say, well, there's no, you know, what's, what's the benefit, right? Uh, you know, I, I was bugged by business students, like, well, why would you, if you didn't have to keep book, your books, would you? Would you keep financial records? Mm-hmm. And I mean, the, the logical answer is the only reason I do is because I have to pay taxes, so I have to file, right? In, in order for the, the government to know how much I made so they can tax me. Otherwise, who cares, right? I mean, you're, you're just... <laughs> Um, It it truly is a labor of love. And I'm finding more medium-sized businesses and small businesses are getting on board with the GRI um, because the the bottom line is you want to make sure that um, the company and the planet is here for your grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And more and more people are accepting of that concept and more conscious of that concept. Um, where before it was just, okay, I just need enough money to have my family live. And then, you know, I need enough money to to do whatever I want to do in retirement. Now it's more, I need a process to where I can hand over my company and my company will outlive me. And Mm -hmm. then my my grandchildren and great-grandchildren will have sustainable income and the planet will also be here so they can have, you know, (laughs) some place to live. And then everybody works nice and, and, and all of that. So And then it's great. There's a great sense of community, especially with the millennials that are coming into the workforce. Um, Social media and COVID has kind of dampened that a little bit. Um, But there, prior to COVID, there was such a connection of the human experience, interacting, connecting, being, you know, face to face and just real with one another and just really doing that whole touchy feely. I care about you. You care about me. Um, and people are working that into their businesses and it's almost a requirement um, anymore. Any of the millennials that are coming into the job market, if your company is not having some sort of community or global initiative to where they're getting involved, they'll, they'll leave. Just leave. Yeah. So it's the, the new cohort that are expecting that culture really. Mm-hmm. So uh, on this, like, because I think you're one of my rare guests who actually knows this stuff um, is uh so riffing on this idea of uh, what I would call measuring the resilience of the assets of the company, because really, I think that's what GRI, they're pro- to me, they're proxies of an asset and its resilience, if you think about, you know, in, in asset terms. Um, any thoughts on how that is a value to company and, and how, what you're seeing, what, what, what are you looking for when you, when I throw it where it's like, you know, asset resilience or sustainability? Um, making smart investments and smart purchases. So when you buy an asset, it's, it's not something that's supposed to depreciate overnight. It's, it's either something that's going to, you're going to get a useful life out of it because you're going to use it to make money 
or you're buying it because it's going to appreciate in value and you know be worth more. Um, and homes used to be like that, where you bought it for one price today, but then 50 years from now, it was you know three or four or more times you know more increase in value. Um, but when companies are buying assets, they need to be smart. Um, technology is great, but it's not. You don't need to buy the first new shiny technological thing that's coming off manufacturing. You know, roll. Um, just being smarter and then making sure that you are leveraging those assets, um, whether it be people, the buildings, your equipment, um, making sure that they're going to stand the test of time, not break down and you not use them up overnight. <laughs> <laughs> Not a brilliant response. I'm just give you an A plus. No, just <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, just building on that then, um, I've been thinking about this idea of the, all right. So you're there's there's a bunch of asset classes like uh, uh, so-called goodwill, or or I would say social capital like relationships and customer value. Have you gone down this path in terms of trying to determine or account for these intangible assets? I I stay away from intangible assets um, just because they're so subjective. Um, If somebody comes at me with an intangible asset, I try to tie a task or a measurable um, event to it. Um, So if you're looking at customer satisfaction, okay, I'm going to turn that into how many customers call and complain, how many customers call and say they're happy, Um, just because- is so subjective and and goodwill used to be a problem. I stepped on the work scene in 2000, um, right before socks in 2002 and goodwill was a big problem. That was like a, almost a plug number for some companies and corporations. So um, yeah, I've, I I learned early the the downfalls and the pitfalls of intangibles. And I I, I try to stay away from those. (laughs) Well, it's interesting because I know from my from experience of my parents selling their their candle business, you know, and they so they they required a, a charter accountant to right to do their balance sheet and had mm-hmm. to come up with a good goodwill valuation. And I thought, well, that's be interesting because I remember when I was taking accounting that you know usually be about ten percent of you know. 10% of balance sheet might be considered goodwill. It was just a rough proxy, but it had mm-hmm. nothing to do really with real goodwill, which could have been the client, you know, the client list uh, or the supply you know, supply chain relationships or something, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which, which are difficult to monetize uh, for sure, but you can't count. You can count, you know, as you said, you know, customer uh, satisfaction, you can do surveys, you can, so you can get, so you're saying you can actually then potentially also correlate that that intangible data with say um, revenues or sales or yeah, yeah as some absolutely. type of uh, attribution analysis. Mm-hmm. Yes. Good. Perfect. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I passed the test. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> no, because no, we're you know we're talking about new innovations in accounting that. Uh, you know, and, and accounting's been around for, we've been using the same standards for 500 years, right? So it's nothing much has changed in the, in the accounting handbook. Um, one thing I've 
I found fascinating when I was writing my first book was the the, uh, the story of of Luca Pazzioli and Leonardo da Vinci in Venice, who you know kind of designed the double entry bookkeeping system. And and Luca was a he was a, a mathematician, but he was also a Franciscan monk. And and he uh, and his buddy uh, Leonardo, who was you know doing a three di- three dimensional sketches and designing helicopters in his dreams. <laughs> was, uh, <laughs> But they came up with, you know, this double, this debit sequel credit system. Uh, but according to some econ- uh, accounting the- uh, theory or history experts, Luca never defined the word profit. Uh, because in that era of Venice and, and guilds, business guilds, there was, you know, once each of the members of a guild were paid a portion of the revenues, then whatever was left over was called a residual. Uh, so this, so that leads me to wonder: is like, did the word profit uh, originate out of some mythology? Because to my understanding, even today, accountants still don't have a clear definition of the word profit. Even though we we talk about it a lot, we say, oh, you know, corporations are profit maximizing. But what if they're not? What if actually they might be residual maximizing? But then, what if? what happens to the residual you know is it retained as retained earnings is it distributed otherwise <laughs> uh, so i get it gives raises some fundamental questions in accounting it does um i think the key is consistency um and transparency um i think transparency is being more open now than it was before um, because before it was like, okay, you don't tell anybody how much you make. You don't tell me anybody how you make your money. And, mm-hmm. you know, and with, you know, Enron and some of the other things that have come along, transparency has been necessary. So to protect the people. Um, so that goes back to sustainability, making sure you're not doing the community harm. So mm-hmm. with that, you have to be honest about what you're making, how you're making it and how you're accounting for it. And then what you're doing. So you're not hiding assets. You know, R&D is a big one. You know, you can dump a bunch of money in R&D, research and development, and then nothing come of it. Well, who are you holding accountable? That goes back to, you know, being responsible, um, getting responsible assets. Um, Are you spending a million dollars on, you know, this brand new technology that really has no vetting or value? Um, Is your company in a position to do that? all of those things. So I think accounting has come a long way and it's um, transforming and it'll be interesting to see what comes out on the other side. It's, I was switching to another new emerging asset class like cryptocurrencies and NFTs and metaverse and uh, whole new frontier in accounting, right? What, what are your thoughts on these new synthetic or... Uh, <laughs> I, I believe that's my generation. All of us gamers and sci-fi buffs <laughs> have gotten power hungry because we're in charge now. <laughs> yeah, we were let our superpowers get out of hand. <laughs> now we, I mean, it's a fascinating era because in a way you'd say, well, it would fulfill a vision I've had is all of us are each other's bankers. So all of us can create money based on our asset called our capacity. So mm-hmm. in an ideal world, you would have millions of, of cryptos uh, transacting based on who you are, who, who you are, what makes you special. 
and why you're valuable or in demand, right? Mm -hmm. uh, versus, okay, Bitcoin, which might be the first one off the block and presumably modeled after gold. And therefore the words mining and that uh, people go, I said, think about the words they're using mining and they're, you know, there's only 21 million Bitcoins that will ever be mined or created, right? Mm -hmm. in, to in totality and that's actually a lot less than the ounce of gold on the planet so right. uh, you didn't base it entirely on gold supply uh, so curious if you have any thoughts on the future of these cryptos and whether they can potentially be linked to uh, real assets um, um in my opinion and it's just my opinion the the success or failure of cryptocurrency is in the regulation so I know the flagship right now is, oh, it's unregulated. You know, it's behind the scenes. It's not backed by anything. You know, you can do with it whatever you will. In theory, that sounds great. But in practice, how, how does that really work? Mm. You know, especially when you have different people using things in different ways. And now you're losing traceability of tracking because people can, you know, exchange money for goods and services and it's not tracked. You don't have to share that information. Yeah, it has so, suspicion that yeah. it's great for, you know, dr drug drug money laundering and, you know, other nefarious yeah. uh, black market, which suspicion would, is reasonable, I think. It's just, but you're talking about how do you, uh, you know, you, they use language like immutability and, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, in the blockchain world, but which sounds great and it should in theory be work in terms of verifying transactions and verifying the, the nature of the transaction. Mm -hmm. but maybe we're mixing blockchain with crypto too much because in the contract, you know, in the relationship, you, you do have mutuality. Like we have an agreement and, mm -hmm. and, just this conversation could be the basis of, of the immutable forever uh, stored on the blockchain, right? Mm -hmm. Which we could go back to replay, go, no, no, to know you, you said this, remember when you said this about when you're 14 <laughs> and, oh yeah. <laughs> so I think that's, that's encouraging. At the same time, there's suspicion that these things can be gamed and manipulated and hacked. And uh, so I'm trying to figure out how do we square the, the promise of blockchain with what we're what we've experienced so far with, with Bitcoin and other crypto. Yeah, and I I don't have an answer because crypto has been like Bitcoin has been very volatile, like it was up you know to the sky and now it's down to the floor and tunneling in. So I don't I don't know. Yeah, it's Highly one of those volatile. things like when we. And to me, it makes no sense because I get back to the point if. When I read, oh, 21 million total Bitcoins will ever be created. Satoshi, right? Whatever. Mm -hmm. Whoever created it. Mm -hmm. That suggests that Bitcoin, in theory, should not be volatile. As it approaches a 21 millionth Bitcoin created, right? Relative to human population, it should, it should be moving towards greater stability. You would think, right? You would think. Yeah. Unless, unless, as we're seeing in China, if they, if the regulators saying, no, we're not endorsing these cryptos uh, as mm -hmm. a as a legitimate alternative to national currencies, then of course, it's not an acceptable means of transaction. So therefore, it loses its natural is going to be volatile because 
That's how I'm reading this now. Right. Mm-hmm. Those the big countries like Russia or China go, uh-uh. I mean, then that takes a lot of the wind out of those crypto. Yeah. And it's hackable. They say it's not hackable, but that everything's hackable. Everything's hackable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually you can, yeah. Wow. Well, I was, yeah, these are, these are really fun. And uh, I mean, they're blending our accounting interests with uh, these new emerging platforms. So yeah, I think it's awesome. They're trying. I think it's wonderful, you know, innovation. It's like, you know, we, we all heard start first start hearing about the computer and cell phones. It's like, Ooh, wow. How does this work? You know, you know, so it, a lot of people really didn't jump on board until it was actually a work in progress. So I think this is just one of those things. They just have to keep working it until they get the kinks out. Yeah. And, and these emerge out of a financial crisis of 2008. So, I mean, right. Which is what you'd expect to see in, in crises and disasters, you see innovation or entrepreneurial ideas emerge, which is mm-hmm. where Bitcoin arose, I think. So I think it has wonderful aspirations. So, so just maybe circling all the way back to when you're 14 or 15 and uh, what are your, um, what are your tips for households who, you know, find themselves in debt constrained situations? Like what, what are the practical things you, you, you tell people and to, to move to person, greater uh, personal sustainability and resilience? Um, look at that food bill. Food and gas are the number one and easy cutters. Um, if you structure your life and do your errand running once a week, you will cut down on gas. Um, if you cook more and stop eating out and eating you know, out several times a day, um, that's a, a quick one. Um, getting your family involved. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of times the adults will make all the decisions and the children, you know, just come along, but then there's a battle of well, mom and dad, I want to do this. Why can't I go to the movies with my friends and that kind of thing? Sit down with your children, you know, as young as you feel that they can understand and let them know the goal of the household. This is what we're trying to do. And this is how much money that we need to save for this purpose. And that'll cut down on the conflict because then the family becomes a part of that. Um, And I've even had some clients where they shared their goals with their kids and their kids would pick up summer jobs and part-time jobs and give part of the money into the household to help with the savings. There we go. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, isn't that so, because, you know, your, your five-year-old says, well, how come we don't have enough money to buy the thing I just am seeing here in the shelf? And you say, well, money is a complex issue. Actually, it's not that complex. Like mm-hmm. I make 20 bucks an hour and this <laughs> thing here is a hundred dollars. So how many hours do I have to work to, give that to you and by, by the way i have to pay taxes on the hundred uh, on the hundred i earn and mm-hmm. so i have to actually work seven hours my dad was showing me he actually sent me a photo of his leather briefcase he bought in germany in 1952 and he said it was 40 deutschmarks and i was he says i only made 40 deutschmarks in a month so it was one month of earnings to buy a leather briefcase mm-hmm. and and <laughs> But the funny thing is it's, it's still in good shape considering so but that's a good know, purchase of an asset <laughs> but, but yeah it's still an asset to be passed on intergenerationally even though i don't really want it but um but it's those conversations to have with your kid is the beginning of financial literacy 
right? Mm-hmm. And they can figure it out. It's like, oh yeah. So, you know, and then you, you're putting into the collective pot, right? Uh, so that that's important. I think debt, you know, debt elimination, but you said something really important because I've, you know, I've been calculating living wages in my work. And, but I think in your paper, you describe how you would take, uh, you're the first person to sort of just focus on food spending. Mm-hmm. Now you'd say, well, that's actually not the top expenditure line item. It's actually, you know, the, the mortgage or the rent and then transportation generally those, you know, and then food is third oftentimes, but you're saying if you were to calculate a kind of a sufficiency wage, it would be, didn't you say like four times your food expenditure? Yes. Yeah. And why, yeah. why do you say, why do you think four times? I'm just doing the math with some of my clients. Um, even a Starbucks run, the average person spends five to $10 on a Starbucks. Sure. And you do that every morning, you know, that's $50 a week yeah. times four. So when you start cutting that down and you start making coffee at home and it just adds up very, very quickly. Um, and, and people just don't think about that because they're, they're like, oh, well, you know, it's only $5 or it's only $10. But if you're doing that several times a day, every day of the week, it adds up really quickly. Yeah. And it costs you uh, full cost accounting that car ride to Starbucks, maybe it costs you 75 cents to get there. Mm-hmm. Right? When you do the math, uh, not just the gas, but the depreciation cost in the vehicle, blah, 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 insurance. And then suddenly you're at $6 for the Starbucks. Uh, but I'm a case in point where it drove my wife crazy where I say, look, honey, why don't we buy this really super nice espresso machine? <laughs> and, and, and I calculate it takes 20, the cost of making a cappuccino is about 27 cents, right? The, just mm-hmm. the inputs, right? Uh, and then you add uh, the labor if you want, but that coffee machine pays for itself in six months. Cause I didn't go to Starbucks to buy two lattes or two cappuccinos every, every day, you know? Yeah. So it's fascinating how those are the little tricks in accounting and saying, see, you know, it is cheaper actually to have your own nice machine and, and you don't even have to drive. You just get up in the morning and turn the machine on. And Exactly. And, and how many times have you come across like a Saturday where you say, okay, we're going to do this um, and we're going to stay home and we're going to, you know, clean out this or do this, but you end up running to the store or running to Lowell's or making like little yeah. trips back and forth just to get, you know, one or two items. And that adds up very quickly in your gas. Sure does. Sure does. Well, you know, speaking of which, I have to depart to visit a friend uh, for Christmas year, but this has been lovely and on our favorite subject, which is accounting and sustainability. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy. I don't have very many accountants to to talk to at this point. I know. It was like totally geek out. People were like, I'm turning off that podcast. It's (laughs) Christmas. Darn it. It's not terrifying. (laughs) <laughs> Rude stuff. 